Hello, my friends. I'm going to start the podcast off a little differently today because our dear sister and friend Lorna C. Hill passed away this past week, and I didn't feel right about starting the fun and frivolity unless I first said a few words about what a sweet, wonderful, thoughtful, kind, energetic, powerful woman she was. I did two shows with Lorna, once when she was directing me and another when I, she was my leading lady, both at her beloved Ujima Theater. And those were experiences that will never be forgotten. She was so kind and so thoughtful and treated me like I was the most important person in the room. And then she treated everyone exactly the same way. We were all sisters and brothers. We were all her team, no matter what. And she will be sorely missed, not only in the Buffalo theater community, but in so many aspects of Buffalo life. And I just wanted to send my deepest sympathies and love to Milky and Zoe and all of her family. And believe me, that's a pretty large group because she treated everyone like family. A member of our team is gone, and we will miss her terribly. And I personally loved her, as I'm sure was true of anyone who knew her. Lorna, we will miss you. We love you. We are forever grateful to you. And there will never be another like Lorna C. Hill. No, don't you, don't you dare. Don't, don't you dare shoot off those fireworks. It's the end. It's over. The 4th of July is... Pa- Oh, hi. It's an extremely frustrated Pete Pomisano who's been listening to fireworks for the past year, it seems like. Of course, maybe it's just that my nerves have gotten a little frayed lately. How about you? Feeling a little unnerved lately? Yeah, I thought you did. We're all getting a little stir-crazy. Even though we're no longer locked in the house, we're watching the news and we're saying, what is going on? Anyway, time for a a little light entertainment. And this episode's light entertainment takes the form of two more interviews of Western New York cultural institutions and two more interviews of Western New York theatrical institutions. We are first going to be talking to Melissa Brown from the Buffalo History Museum. Now, if you don't know about the Buffalo History Museum, you are going to learn something this week, whether you like it or not. What a terrific interview she gave me. And I cannot wait until they open for real so I can go there again and see all that I've been missing. We'll follow that up with Mr. Richard Lambert from the New Phoenix Theater. 
New Phoenix on the Park, one of the most beautiful theaters, arguably, in Buffalo. Certainly one of the most beautifully landscaped and painted on the outside. Richard will be here to tell us what's going on with his theater. And then, as if that wasn't enough, for one podcast, we've got two more interviews. One with Mary Rogers from the Martin House, the Darwin Martin Estate, over there on Jewett Parkway in Buffalo. What a spectacular Buffalo institution that has become, bringing in people from all over the world, except now, of course, in quarantine, we need to get out and see it ourselves. Those of you who are looking for something to do, the History Museum, the Darwin Martin House on Jewett Avenue, you have these jewels in your backyard. Go see them. And they have convinced me you're going to be able to do it safely. And finally, to round it all out, from the Lancaster Opera House, Mr. David Bondro, who has got some great ideas of what's going to be happening at the Lancaster Opera House. So I suggest you sit back, get yourself a nice cold lemonade or something a little bit harder, and enjoy this edition of Off-Road with Pete Pomisano. It's an RLTP podcast. Those are the four most popular words to be spoken on any one day. Can you hear me? Yeah. Listen, Melissa, let me, first of all, let me apologize because didn't you just open yesterday as part of phase four? No, so we didn't yet. We're, we're not opening until August 1st. Um, we decided to hold back a little bit. We're going to do members opening the last week of July and, and do that first. Um, but we plan on opening for August for free for that month. And we're going to do a four day week. So we just wanted more time for training yes. for the staff because our staff, it, uh, what we did do this week, and maybe that's where the, you, you might've heard, we brought, at least we notified some of our team that was still on furlough that they're coming back. to so like our guest services associates, Great. you know, we'll have training for the entire staff. And then, you know, we want to make sure we have that done in all of the, we're still working on placing the signage and installing, you know, the acrylic uh, for the PPP and things like that. So we just want to make sure we have everything buttoned up. But we thought with August, it would be kind of a safer bet. And, and you know, then we wouldn't have to like open and close. And, you know, we're trying to just. I have to also admit to you something very embarrassing. But I don't feel completely bad about it because I asked another dear friend of mine, and she didn't know either. Now, here's the problem. I know it used to be the historical society. Society, yep. Right? I know that. But I did not know, and there's a difference between the Buffalo History Museum and the Buffalo History Museum. Mm -hmm. do, do you hear the difference? Because I asked a friend of mine, I said, now, do you think it's a history museum? which is located in Buffalo, mm -hmm. or is it a museum about Buffalo? And she said, I, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure. And we've, we've both been there. She's a member. Right. And so I thought, this is my own confusion. I, I have since discovered that it is a museum about Buffalo history, which makes me even more excited about it because I am a huge Buffalo. My whole family is out of town. Okay. I'm the only one left here, Melissa. It's very sad. And I keep trying to get them to move back here. Well, now with some of our digital resources, you can send them to them and they can get back in touch with their Buffalo roots. That's right. I, I never realized that it really is a, a museum dedicated 
to the history of, of Buffalo. But all right, that's that's enough of that. I, I just wanted to admit my ignorance. I, came, I became involved in 1998, right before the, um, the centennial of the Pan Am. So that's yes. where I got my start at the museum. But then in 2011, became the director. 2012, that's when we rebranded. We were working on it, though, prior to, to my becoming director. We, it was a four-year process. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because we are still kind of struggling with our name. Um, you know, some people still call us Historical Society, which is fine. The whole point of getting away from Buffalo and Erie County Historical Society is, you know, it, was, it doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> but obviously, there's still room for improvement. Well, I, here's my suggestion. It should be Museum of Buffalo History. Museum there you of go. Buffalo History. Rolls right off the tongue. As a former English teacher, I spent many hours yesterday thinking about this. So I just wanted to, to, right off the bat, show my ignorance, and maybe you'd you know feel sorry for me for the rest of the interview. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. You've been closed since, since March, I assume, as everybody else has. Is, is that correct? You've been to, closed to the public? We closed on March 16th. So with the stay-in-place order, we closed the building, and then we had our team basically working from home right away. What about maintenance of the building? And I know you have another building over on Forest yep. where you have thousands of display items and, and props, as we would call them in theater. But what about that? Did the building during those colder months, was there an issue where you had to make sure you were taking care of the buildings and the items and the displays? Did somebody have to be available? Did somebody have to be on? Were you walking through there yourself with a dust mop every now and then? Well, a little bit of all the things you just described. So we do have, we have three buildings. So that little building across from the museum too um, oh. is our, that's where a lot of the admin offices are in the Rheinstein Center. So our accountant, our director of finance, she was over there pretty much the entire time working in her office because there was nobody else in the building and mm -hmm. you know she could be safe and, and keep, kind of keep an eye on things. And that's where our mail gets delivered and things like that. And then the main building, we have a facilities manager, um, Rob, who he's been going in um, at least three days a week, some, some weeks more. I mean, we've had, we have a construction project. You might've heard about our portico project. That was yes. the first phase was winding down. We had like two more things to do it when the stay in place order hit. And so we were able to get final approvals because the building was still, they were waiting to seal the floor lights on the portico. And so they were able to get an approval as essential work to close the building up because it was leaving the building vulnerable by not being able to fill that in. So we got the special approval for that. So he had to meet those workers a couple times, but he's been monitoring the main building. And then Walt Mayer, who is our director of collections, he works in the building on Forest that you mentioned, yes. our resource center. And you're right. Most of the collections are stored there and we do have um, an exhibit. So he's been monitoring that building and he's been going in kind of like Lori pretty regularly I've been going in at least once or twice a week. I've been going up and like when we need things signed or if there are things that need to be tended to in the buildings. Right now, I think the uptick for Rob has been the outdoor upkeep, you know, because now with the weather and, um, you know, he's been doing more of the outdoor things. And the 
parks were beautiful when I, when I was there just last Friday. Good. I mean, you'd never you'd never know that the place had been locked tight for four three or four months. Good. It's funny because people are still coming out. Like we're a, a popular venue for photographs. Yes. And I think with all of the you know ceremonies changing and things, Rob's been finding a lot of glitter and sparkles <laughs> and confetti <laughs> on the portico. So he's had to, um, normally we, we see a lot of proms and, and weddings this time of year, but it's a little bit different, obviously, with people not being able to gather in the same ways. So um, so good. I'm glad it looked good. The Olmstead Parks are a great partner with us as well. And they, they do a wonderful job with the Japanese gardens and all of the, really, they help us even with our campus as well. So, you know, we enjoy a good relationship with them. So you've had, I'm sure you had a lot of furloughs, a lot of people mm -hmm. who you had to, and, and are they being called in piecemeal, a little at a time or, or, or is everything being done on Zoom now where you're doing training on Zoom? So Peter, it's really a combination. When we first closed that week of the 16th, I can tell you immediately when you're looking at a 40% cut in revenue right off the top, just with what would be predictable at that point, just from earned revenues and um, maybe some of the grants that might have been impacted. The board chair and myself spent a lot of time kind of modeling scenarios and we went with a worst case scenario. Um, even at that point, we said, like, what if we don't open till Labor Day? And we, we were thinking that far out. And we didn't know PPP had been announced at that point, but not really what the eligibility would be, what sure. the terms of forgiveness. So we didn't want to really depend on that as the only solution. So we took some pretty drastic measures that were difficult early on. By April 1st, I had furloughed almost half of our team. So we have 25 FTEs and we took, I would say eight of them were completely furloughed. And then several of our, our team members, even our senior team members who weren't, you know, who couldn't as readily do their jobs, they were at halftime. But once we started seeing some of the opportunities of the relief grants, particularly then, you know, also the PPP, and we applied for that, we did bring back by April, so it was two weeks, by April 13th, we had restored most of the team. The only members that remained on furlough uh, was one of our maintenance team members who, without people coming to the building, we didn't need them as much. And then that team I mentioned earlier in the call, the um, guest services team who really facilitate all of the guest experiences. So just this week, there are several staff members that I've had to lay off permanently. And they were mostly part-time staff members who were in that guest services team because now we're going to a four-day week being open and we have no events. We have no evening events and no weekend events. So we just don't have the work, frankly, to sustain all of that, right. let alone, you know, the, the resource limitations. But for the team that we retained throughout and then those members that came back from furlough on the 13th, we had to really maneuver very quickly. I would say it wouldn't be an underestimation to say we were 90% site-driven experiences. Mm -hmm before COVID. Um, we pushed that. I mean, we don't have a huge marketing budget as you know, I'm sure you know, and we, we pushed everything was like, you know, we're having this event on this day or come for a tour or come for this. We had digital resources, but we didn't really push them. I would say by the good grace of 
I don't know if we want to say God or the energies of the world or whatever you want to say, we had some donors come forward last year who helped us redo our website and that had debuted in February. And I can't tell you about a project that I've been more happy to see come to fruition because if we had been based in the old website when this hit, it would have been a lot worse to, to transition as quickly as we had to. So within a couple weeks, really from say that middle of March period until early April, we shifted everything to a digital focus and um, really pushing out content that we had already created, but we just had never packaged and marketed per se. And collections team members who had been originally furloughed, suddenly they started getting very savvy in social media and sharing you know, stories from the collection that we we don't really push necessarily in the same way. Is there a, a particular singular person who's in, in charge of maintaining the website? Um, Cheyenne Ketter Franklin, who I think you were in touch with. Yes, yes. She's our um, communications and content coordinator. She's been amazing through all of this. And so she worked with Helm was the company um, that we actually partnered with to redo our website. And they focus on user experience. So we wanted it to look better, but we really wanted it to function better because our old one was kind of a Frankenstein. It had been built over a period of time. Yes. It wasn't cohesive. Things that we wanted quick access to were buried. So they helped us really um, focus on user experience and they were, they were great partners to work with. So Cheyenne supervised that project and now she's the one who really um, coordinates the team. So while each of us may devise content and even, even my post, you know, we, we send things through content review and have a practice, but then Cheyenne is the ultimate clearinghouse. Like I don't actually post my posts. Cheyenne will post them, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's how we, we do it. So she's had a lot coming at her in these last few weeks. Well, you know, I have to, just to, to backtrack a little bit here, because when I was there last Friday and I'm looking up at that fantastic building, and the the, the last remnant, I understand mm-hmm. it was meant to be the only the only the only permanent building of the, from the Pan Am it was the only one meant to last. Is that is that Correct. see? I'm I'm kind of a Pan Am nerd. I I actually have a Pinterest page with Pan Am diagrams and drawings. And I will have to look. I will have to look that up, Peter. But yeah, it was the only building intended to remain beyond the Pan Am. And it was a brilliant maneuver by our board at the time. Andrew Langdon in particular, who was um, a brother-in-law of John Albright. So he married John Albright's sister. He uh, was into uh, real estate, but oil, um, you know, just invested well, very involved with the museum all through the end of the 19th century. And they had been fundraising for a building. They wanted a fireproof building, obviously. That was a big concern at that time period. And with collecting, they they started collecting in 1862 and it was a transient collection. It had moved. They were renting spaces. Like originally we shared space with the Albright and the Science Museum down in the old library next to the Hotel Lafayette. That the original location of the old library. Mm-hmm. And then we moved into the Y building. There, there were, and there were some law offices. Um, so they were fundraising and they still hadn't quite reached the goal of what they thought it was going to take for this permanent building. 
But then Andrew Langdon saw the value of net, his networks at the state. And he's like, look, you have to build a state pavilion for the exposition. And we have this money. So if we put your money with our money, we could build a permanent building wow. and it would be a legacy piece. And it was genius, you know, very smart. $150,000 to build that building in 1901. Oh my God. I couldn't build it. I couldn't buy a column for that. What is that in modern dollars? I mean, I well, can't put a garage up for that. I think some of the issues we deal with in that building, frankly, were because it was built fast. Like it was built basically in nine months, you know. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was fast. There was a fountain out in front of our building and it's one of my favorite artifacts in the collection is a scrapbook by the director of electricity or he was the electrical engineer basically of the exposition and he um they didn't really allow photographs you had to pay to take photos at the pan am unless you were a licensed photographer but in this period where they were building it he took it upon himself to document particularly this fountain project he was working on in the lake in front of our building. Wow. So some of the earliest views of our building, the only ones we really have are from his scrapbook and they show the building without windows in it. Oh. And as the, it's really cool. Very cool. But I often wonder if any of the remnants of that fountain are still down in, <laughs> in the lake somewhere. Yes, buried somewhere deep within. But, but, but my question is that because it is a hundred year old building and it's a magnificent building and does it pose any particular problems or, or are there any particular advantages mm -hmm. to the situation that we're in right now? Does it pose any particular problems, first of all? First of all, I would say the only problem that it poses is, is really not unique to us. It's more unique to people who are really charged with preserving older buildings and keeping up the maintenance. And I mentioned that project we're working on to reactivate the portico space. So we've been working on that for about a year now, a little more than a year. And we're moving into phase two, which will be a, more of the finishing of the space yes. and, and updating some of the amenities on the inside. But the first phase was all about dealing with the envelope, you know, the outside of the building, doing some repointing. And I think the only challenge the building really poses, I don't know if you want to call it a, a problem or more of a consideration as we are constantly planning and moving, whether we're in COVID or not, is maintaining the building. And, you know, the challenges of COVID is that if there's not teams that can come in and do the construction or keep up with the maintenance schedule, that can be a challenge. But we found we were able to get, like I said, the special approval to continue that project. And now it's finished. Um, the, the skylights are all, or the floor lights above that chamber are all in. And so we've, we've been able to finish that. So that, but I would say in, in terms of the social distancing, it's about a 33,000 square foot building all in. You know, that's not all public spaces. Yes. But, and you've mentioned being in the building, we have a very open floor plan. So I feel like when we do reopen in August, one of the wonderful things about the museum is that we're really positioned well for social distancing and Good. for inviting people in to the space. Um, we're working on a plan. We've actually developed it. This is part of the training where we'll be inviting guests to come in and trying to take a singular track through the museum rather than just like, oh, I'm interested to go to icons and then I'll go downstairs or I'll go see Russert. We're trying to suggest that they go upstairs and then work their way down in a single path to help with 
cross-pollination and, you know, directionality. Force a trajectory right. through the building. Right. I see. And, and we're not suggesting on the third floor, or I guess it would be the second floor, depending on how you're looking at it, but our, our second level, that you necessarily go in a certain order. But just that if you work your way down, we're um, suggesting directionality on the stairs. So one side will be up and one side will be down just to help people maintain a distance, um, especially as they're moving in family groups. Uh, and I think that for, for me, I would find that very helpful. Mm -hmm. my, my grandchildren were up last summer, we went to the science museum. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where you're almost overwhelmed. Where should we go first? What should right. we do? If there was some guidance, I think that would actually be a, a plus. Right. And as you said, you're not forcing them to do see this first or say that, but here's a, a suggested trajectory to get through the building efficiently right. and, and safely. So I think that's I think that's a great idea. We're updating our literature because we usually give people a printed map. Um, we're going to update the printed map, but we're going to have it available either so you could upload it on your mm -hmm. phone or if you want to take a picture of it there, if that's easier for you than uploading anything yes. or, you know, we have to deal with a spectrum of abilities and, yes. and technologies and but the biggest part is just orienting people because even in our building people are like where are the restrooms where you know they sometimes find it hard they get disoriented it's only three floors but it, it can be disorienting when you're not familiar so the, we only have one elevator so we're asking people to just maintain a distance from the elevator where you would go in or go out and then only one associated grouping at a time so you wouldn't even though you might be able to fit two parties of two people and eat, like two couples yes. we would ask that you would go up in the group that you came I with. see so that we're trying to mitigate that with the elevator um, but with the directionality we I'm not sure if you're familiar but we have that ground level exit actually entrance and exit it's a fully accessible entrance yes. at the lower level on mm -hmm. the right side of the building so people will all exit okay that way and so that'll help with congestion in the front sort of a one a one-way trajectory in and out of the building right yeah, that, right. that makes sense. And it won't be the end of the world if people don't follow the trajectory. You know, the spaces are such that they really are pretty open. Uh, I think our library, we do we do see a lot of researchers in there during the week. And, you know, it can be 12, it can be 20. Um, that would be a, a big number. But, you know, obviously with social distancing, that's going to be a challenge. So we're looking at a combination of, which I think is, is going to be maybe something we'll do moving forward would be tele-research. So in, we do get inquiries by phone, but it would be more facilitated at this point than what we normally do and making appointments. Um, so we'll just see fewer people in the library than we normally do by appointment, um, but we'll be open. And we're looking at, depending on de demand, once we gauge that, you know, maybe we'll have more hours than we normally do in the library. Because right now we're only, op we're typically open one until five Wednesday through Saturday. And so maybe we'll expand it to be the whole day on the days that we're open. We're going to just see how the demand is for that. We're also looking at um, our, the resource center has the Pan Am exhibit in it. Have you, I don't know if you've been over there. I have not been to the Pan Am okay. exhibit. You'll have to check that out. Oh, I'm definitely going to. It's always open on our third Fridays, but we're going to try it being open on all the Fridays in August. 
um, just to see. It's a big space. It's it's about six thousand square feet of space, and it's a very open floor plan. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very conducive to you know the guidance that we're seeing right now for welcoming people safely into spaces. And so we're we're going to experiment with that. And if you know there's a good flow of people and a demand, we'll just keep up with it. And it sounds like you found a lot of interesting new ways to. You know, one of my one of my feelings about this whole quarantine, and I'm always trying to look on the bright side, is that people are sort of forced into new ways of doing things that they either didn't try before or didn't have a need to try before, but everybody's trying something different to try to cope. And in some ways, we're making discoveries that we didn't expect. I have been to your website, mm -hmm. and of course I was at your website. I <laughs> I love the postcards, the COVID-19. The chronicling COVID, yeah. I love that idea. I just love, well, that's where I first discovered that you are, in fact, the Museum of Buffalo History. Right. Uh, because I had to go to the website to actually determine it. And I love that idea. And I, of course, I, I looked at some other things that you had, like the M&T Third Friday, which are these things right. that I'm sure have been postponed or... We've been doing them virtually, basically, for the M&T Third Fridays. They have been an extraordinary supporter. I think, gosh, we might be in our seventh year with them on the thir the Fridays, and they do the Albright and the Birchfield and Buffalo Art Studio on, on each of the different Fridays. But we've just had to shift more to... Uh, virtual programming for those days. We're learning new things. And I think one of the things that was really interesting is we've never, I don't think people have ever described us as particularly technologically savvy as, a, as an organization, maybe inherent because of being a history museum. But three years ago, we moved to basically a thin client desktop. So everything went to the cloud. We were able to work remotely. I, I've been working on a remote desktop at home for, you know, it, in the evenings or whatever for many years. So we were actually, not all of the staff used it that often, but we were able to very quickly move to working, you know, from home. Like I can get onto my full desktop at work from home and that's great. You can access all the files and everything. So we did that. And I mean, talk about, you know, pushing people. We always had the ability. It's like Dorothy and the Ruby slippers. You always <laughs> had the ability to go home. You just never knew it. Um, so we, um, you were having too good a time in Oz and yeah. you decided uh, yeah. you, so you know, we, stick around we for a while. figured out that we could do that. Those are the, I think the silver linings that it, it pushes you into places where you may have been beyond your comfort zone, but sometimes comfort is a bit of a complacency, you know, and <laughs> yes, and you figure out, well, geez, this isn't that hard, and and it and it helps us, so it makes change happen faster. I know that next is it next year is the 200th anniversary of Erie County. Yes, uh, are, are, is there something specifically that you are going to be involved with that you can announce now, or that you or hasn't been covered that you you want to talk about a little bit? Sure. They're, the Bicentennial um, actually would officially begin April Fool's Day. April 1st was the official date for the county's anniversary for 200 years. And we have been planning an exhibit um, at the History Museum all along. We are still planning that, but we're also looking at how we can make it an on-site experience, but also creating resources for um, the community virtually. So we have both options. And I would say we wouldn't have probably spent as much time on the virtual content had we not be, been pressed more by the likelihood that, you know, COVID is going to be something we're going to be dealing with in different ways for, I would say, pandemic-aware 
procedures are going to be an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, myself and Jason Hurley, who's the county historian, I'm sorry, who is the county executive's liaison, and then our county historian, Doug Kohler, we have been working with an array of heritage-based organizations throughout the entire county. Um, we're going into two years now of, of planning to try to create experiences that are countywide. Because I think one of the things we, we are challenged with when we talked about the name is we are a Western New York organization. So we do specifically tell the story of Buffalo, which of course is a bit of an anchor for our community in terms of yes. an urban center. But we also have rural stories and we have the broader Western, you know, the canal story. That's a story frankly, that goes through our entire region. So, you know, we tell broader stories and um, we really are trying to engage our partners at a time where I think we're honoring as a bicentennial only as an awareness factor for the, you know, the sense that you have these amazing resources in your own backyard that a lot of people, they just don't even know that are there, you know, and when they find out, I know they're like, wow, I, you know, I didn't know that kazoos were made here. I didn't know <laughs> that Eden, New York. Yeah. I, you know, I, the, these little nuanced stories that really contribute to the character of our region, they're housed within these these organizations that are the heart of our our community or or arguably you know should be so we're really working on a broad celebration and then specifically as as an organization that's one of the larger um, regional history museums if not the largest we want to really do an exhibit that that devotes attention to this we did just recently get a, a funding announcement from the NEH which is going to help us partly with the bicentennial, but for the museum specifically to digitally pivot. Because like I told you, we we were not super digitally based or virtual, mm-hmm. let's say virtually based prior. Yes. So this will allow us, it's experiencing our story. The acronym is EOS because it's EOS was the goddess of the dawn. And it's a bit of a digital dawn for us at the History Museum. And playing off of our Greek architecture, (laughs) we are working on five different platforms. So the funding will allow us to create virtual exhibit experiences using our existing exhibits, just allow them to be on our website as well. Tours, a new podcast. We have three episodes written, so we're going to be debuting that soon. We're going to be doing some offsite going outside the museum walls so we can take some of our experts on staff or even some of our partners in the community and maybe do a story about the peace bridge we have the shovel from the first oh my lord of dirt from the peace bridge so to tell the story of the peace bridge but maybe be at the peace bridge to tell the story and so to go out more in the community so that's a piece of the experiencing our story pivot that we're working on and those we will be working on on those um and we did we did receive that funding so that activity has started now you know melissa i i I could talk to you all day i think i almost have before we leave i wanted to ask you just quickly we just glossed over the the covid19 stories the postcards and pictures and journals i'm keeping my own journal of it because i i have a family memoir that i've that i've written but could you talk just a little bit about it, about what it is? Because I think one of the great losses of the digital age is the fact that we don't write physical letters anymore. Yes. And so much of our history, you know, dating back, oh, 
past the Civil War was in, in letters that were written home to loved ones and so on. And we don't really have that physical thing. But I think what you're doing is sort of going to be collecting physical items. Am I correct? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought it up because actually this was the really the first of the, um, I would say, want to use the pivot word that we did in the in the stay in place is, was developing this idea around chronically COVID. And, you know, it wasn't a, an idea unique to us. Other historical organizations are thinking about this too in, in the role for contemporary collecting. But I can tell you, you know, when you talk about problems to overcome, we're more of a passive collecting organization. We often wait for people to say, oh, you know, I was cleaning out my attic and I found such and such. And, yes. you know, would you be interested in this? And then we ask them, you know, do you have a photograph? Do you know more of the story? And, and sometimes we do identify things that we, we don't have and we seek them out. But I would say that that's not as much as we'd want it to be. So with chronicling COVID, we actually started thinking about how we can make it easier for people to participate. And I can tell you, it was, it was a difficult conversation with the staff because, you know, we don't usually collect on virtual platforms. That's not been our mode of operation. We tend to want physical, even if it's in the archives, it's like we want a letter. We want a piece of paper or a journal yes, yes. or a physical item. And especially with photography, you know, if, if someone hands us a jump drive, it's like, how will we make this preservable? Yes. And yeah. when technology changes. So, you know, originally the discussion amongst our team was, you know, we, we have to ask people to print photos and send them to us. Or And I'm like, hmm. You know, I I don't think people are going to participate if we do that. And in other organizations, we're moving very nimbly to say, like, going back to technology. There's so many tools now, so we we started moving, and then we figured it out. And which is not something we're we're super comfortable in doing. But we started asking for the stories, and then we were able to create the email. And then so for folks like you who, you know, I, you didn't say if your journal was on a computer, if you're actually writing it, Cheyenne is doing a written journal, which I'm excited about because she's talking about giving it to the museum. Beautiful. But we have seen a whole spectrum. So from students that are participating with their teachers as part of writing assignments to people. Um, I remember one that came in on a day that I was at the museum um, in the mail. Um, so we, we had to make it accessible that way too, because we're not there to accept donations at the door. So we had asked people, you know, if you do want to mail something in, um, one of the days I was there, a woman, I can't remember the names of the, the individuals, but it really moved me. Her father and his brother were in their 80s, and they were essential workers. They have been running an automobile shop that was their father's and I think their grandfather's before that in Buffalo. So three generations, and they never stopped working through this whole, they, they still are doing body work and car work. And she took this amazing selfie of herself and then her father and her uncle behind her in the shop. And she's like, you know, they learned about social distancing and here they are in their 80s and they we're still working. And she's like, I just want their story captured for time. Beautiful. And those are the things that if we can't make a pivot like this, we risk losing those stories in the moment. Exactly. So it's, it's provoked bigger questions for us about how we can be a more nimble collector and how we can better document our time. And I think it came to a head again 
around some of the um, civil unrest in the discourse that happened in the wake of George Floyd's death and then the protests in our community because then again it came up where we this is history happening right now yes. and we really need to make sure that we are are doing something to to document it and ideally we're just engaging the community in doing that you know we're we're working with them to capture those stories because that's that's how it happens best so uh, we've had great really response from chronicling covid and we've already received some protest signs in the collection and usually those things come after the fact like 10 years later or something. So it's nice to have them happening in real time and we hope to see even more, but it's still a work in progress, but we're seeing people participating by just uploading photos, mailing things in. Um, so hopefully, you know, when you're in a position, you'll consider sharing your journal with us too. Oh, I, I think I just might. I might have to handwrite some things. It, not many things are handwritten anymore. No, we're talking about embargoing some of the things too, because there might be like, especially with kids and things, there's considerations like, you know, we don't want to just not collect them because it may not be appropriate to share because they're minors or something. Yes. But yet when we're, you know, we have to remember we're collecting for the people 100 years from now. Right. So if we don't get it right now, they're not going to be able to have the insights 100 years from now of, of, the, of what people were experiencing at this time. So I just thought it was a terrific idea. I stumbled across it on your website. I'm glad. I really enjoyed reading about it. Is there anything, is there anything else you, you'd like to say about why the History Museum is an essential part of Western New York? I, I should say the History Museum. No. What did I call it? The Museum of Buffalo History? <laughs> Buffalo History, yes. Well, I think we covered it, but you know, if I want to dial in real specific, it's just that if ever there were a time to be a history museum in Buffalo, I mean, even before COVID hit, there's an energy around history in the community right now, even, even the difficult parts of it, that is is different from when I started at the museum 20 years ago. You know, whether it's development, and development relates to the architecture, or it's the stories of the people, or the, the racial unrest in our community, I think that it's a very important time for us to, to step up and be present in the community. And any organization that documents and shares history, is the, that is where the character of the community comes from. You know, it's if, if every place had the same exact story, then no place would be distinctive. And I think arguably one of the things that makes Buffalo so special is it has so many layers. And in our region, we have a really um, multidimensional history. And, you know, we're just trying to be be present for that and, and really make sure that the stories of today's folks are, are represented in the future as well. So it's both in the past and in the present. And before I say goodbye one more time, when do you expect to open mid-July? We'll be opening to our members the last week. Um, so it'll be the, the 29th, 30th, and 31st. Mm -hmm. And then August 1st, which is a Saturday, will be our public opening. And we will be in, open for the entire month of August for free. And we just want to invite people out for some respite, you know, to, to have a safe place to go to. And we'll be open for four days a week. So it'll be Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. Melissa Brown, thank you so much. I, it was a pleasure sure. talking to you. 
I learned so much on this podcast, but I really appreciate it. Peter, I feel the same way in, in my job. And I think it's one of the humbling things that, I mean, I've been dabbling in the history of our community for the better part of over 20 years. And every day I learn something new. And now as director, sometimes it's like I'm learning new things about water <laughs> infiltrating the building or, you know, those or developing an emergency plan. But it, it is interesting because it's humbling. I mean, there's there are, there's so many things to learn and you must meet so many different people who all have a different lens and experience. So I, I imagine that's probably one of the best parts of your job. It is. It's been so edifying. And talking about the fact that doing this on Zoom, I mean, I would love to meet we you in will. person. We will. We will someday. But I, but I, oh, we will because I'm going to be in there I'm sometime in August. I'm going to have to have you to the resource center because you could do, you could maybe do a location. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Recording there. But being able to do this in Zoom, it makes it easier for someone like you, who's a very busy woman, to say, yes, I can devote 10 minutes, which turned out to be an hour to you, Peter. It's okay. I, I'm a talker too. So, you know, in case you didn't notice. That's fine. I'll cut out my stuff because yours was more important. You have a good day, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us on Off-Road. You as well. It was really nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. I'll see you in person soon. Okay. Sounds good, Peter. Take care. Bye-bye. You see, now that's no bull. I told you that what a fascinating woman she is and what a fascinating interview. And you think that'd be enough for one podcast, but you'd be wrong. Because now we have a dear friend of mine, Mr. Richard Lambert, from over there at the New Phoenix Theater, the New Phoenix Theater on the Park. Welcome to Off-Road. How have you been personally? Uh, I, I have been fine. I think, you know, if, if this is life in a pandemic, we're luckier than most. You mentioned the meals. We get, uh, we get to eat well. Mark hasn't changed his schedule. He's back there working right now. Uh, I've got the puppies. I'm grateful <laughs> to have a roof over my head. Yes. Uh, I've got the full yard across the street to take the dogs into. So there are, I don't want to bitch. I want to be grateful about, about what I have and not only surviving it, but there are so many people that don't have half uh, as much as, as we have. So I've always been, my glass is always half full. Uh, I'm a grateful guy. Yeah, and I and I feel exactly the same. And I feel bad every time I see that the, the poor mother on TV with the five kids, and she's just waiting for the check to come so she can pay either the uh, the rent or the food or the med medication. And she, I feel so bad for those people. And you know, you don't know what to do for them. Right, we're like-minded that way. So we, uh, and it's good to say it out loud that we are grateful for for all of the things that we do have. So I'm like, whatever whatever I can do to, to help anyone or spread some love. Like you're you're great at that. I mean, you're sort of an, a sweetheart, an empathetic man who people have looked up to for, you know, forever you've been here and and preaching the good word and, and keeping us all. But I've got the gray hair to show us. Uh, very distinct. <laughs> this is why you get all the work for 50 and above all around you and Mr. Abbott, God bless. That's right. You know, we try to get around, we're trying to get around all these different cultural institutions and try to see how, how people are doing because everybody got hit. You know, it wasn't just us theater folk and everybody got hit pretty badly. So I'm trying to open the door and talk to a lot of different people, people that I, I think need to have a voice. Right. And, and it's not a wine session as you've already, as you've already pointed out, we're not going to whine about things, Sure. but I do, I think people want to know what's going on with, with the new Phoenix and with you and, and so on. And so first of all, let me just ask you this question is the new Phoenix. Does it afford you any, advantages in, in this time period or are there any disadvantages to the theater? I don't mean to as a theater, I mean the building itself. 
just maintenance and so on? There are pros and cons, too. I was talking to uh, Tony Roberto from the Buffalo News, and she was mm -hmm. saying, we don't have a lot of like full-time employees there, so it's, it's, a, it's a quiet time at the Phoenix, but we don't have to pay salaries. But I reminded her that since we bought the building like 25 years ago, there's the things that don't stop are utilities and electric and insurance. And yes. So and we need a new roof. So it's, it's like having a dozen employees of trying to cut your nut each month, making sure that there is rental coming in to, to take care of all those things. I've got a great tenant. I got one of Buffalo's finest, Nick Lama, who's living upstairs. And oh, I was going to ask you who's living upstairs now. I was going to ask it's you. Nick, that. and for a bunch of years, like three years, and, uh, and like yourself, he's a, a sweetheart of a guy and so he talented is. and so well liked uh, in the community. And uh, during the pandemic, he hasn't missed a, a rental payment. So for a while, that was the only income we had coming in mm -hmm. uh, from Nick Lama. And like I say, he was right there with it. So it's another reason to feel blessed. I feel surrounded by good guys. So many people, almost everyone I know in this city is like one of the good guys. Uh, and I'm grateful that doesn't always happen. So, you know, we're going on. I just started striking the set from Kiss of the Spider-Woman this past week. Mm. The barbed wire came down. So that was a sign of eventual moving on. Moving on. Configuration that we're set up for theater in the round right now. I think once we do open, uh, we can uh, fit more bodies in it that way. So we'll leave the basic configuration up, but it's time to move on and get this get set down and the bunks that were built, move them out elsewhere and uh, be ready to pivot when they tell us, go, you can pivot. <laughs> so I want to be ready for it whenever it happens, you know? Sure. And and the, I was going to ask you about Kiss of the Spider-Woman because it, it, how much of a run did they get in? We opened up Friday night and we had, uh, luckily, Anthony Chase was there to review us. Uh, and then we got into Saturday. So we got the second, you know, the, our slower nights and we were papered for Saturday and we called it then. That was our last show. So we got two performances in, oh. but, but the people who were there got to watch something intimate and really work was extraordinary it was just an intimate piece between the two of them i forgot how moving the, the piece was and especially rendered by rick and rolando they were just doing such and now all the superlatives come on exquisite work gentle nuanced stuff that only you know a handful of people got to see because we only had the two days but it impacted those people it was it was I don't want to launch too heavily, but I thought it was beyond theater. It was uh, Rolando's finest work in, in the 20 plus years that, I, that I've known him. So I just wish more people like we all, you know, got a chance to see the extraordinary work that they were doing. And for a time, did you, as, as we did over at the Cavanoke, for, for a time, did you think, well, maybe we'll be able to restart this? A long time. I only struck, like I said, this past week and I kept it up all these months later in the hopes that maybe we'll get two or three weeks. If we, we could sneak a couple of weeks in August or hold it, do we hold it for September 12th for curtain up if we have that again? And then it just got the feeling that it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't going to happen and you'd have to be ready to pivot and make decisions. You know, and I certainly hope to work with, with both of them again. And Mike Dobin, who was uh, extraordinary uh, in the event as well. So we'll, we'll meet again, but you know, it, theater is so ephemeral and fleeting that you have to be there. You got to be in it to win it. And those people who were there for those two performances, uh, I think won something that they'll keep in their heads forever. There's something about that phrase, you can't go home again, and you try to recreate the magic of, of the way it, well, I've done shows where we've, re, you know, recreated the same thing that we tried to do a, a year ago. Yeah. It, there's just, 
you're right. It's it, there's just something about it that you can't put your finger on it, but it's not quite the same. And that moment is past. Right, right. At least I'm glad for them that they at least had somebody see it and and recognize the beauty of it sure. uh, as as Anthony did. And I feel that there were so many other plays that didn't even get a chance to open. Right. And uh, how sad that. That must have been for those people. At the same time, I think Hand to God was going as well with Scott. Yes. Now, he's smart. I think he said uh, he's not going to do anything until uh, March of, of 21. Yes. But but his Hand to God set is still up in case they say, okay, September 12th, go. Just do A, B, and C, which mm-hmm. is what we're waiting for. Give me specifics. And then I know he he's chomping at the bit to bring back what apparently is another extraordinary play that uh, that people have enjoyed being cathartically taken through. Mm-hmm. So he's smart too, and he's got, uh, we'll cancel until we know more, but he's at the ready to go back in the hand of God the minute that they, the minute that God says, put your hand back on the stage. You know? <laughs> Let's just forget 2020 ever, ever happened. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> it's sure. been so sure. awful. We were in the middle of the 25th anniversary season. Mm. So I'm just going, I'm claiming it again, too. I'm claiming a do-over. So we got 25th anniversary part two. And we know that uh, we'll be coming back with Pammy to do Virginia Woolf again yes. in the same spot at the end of next season. That was the one thing I I didn't want to mess around with. I didn't want to lose. Mm-hmm. And oddly, that was one of the first ones that got called to in New York. It was in previews to open on Broadway with Laurie Metcalf and Rupert Everett, I believe. And one of the ushers in that Broadway theater was one of the first to diagnose with COVID. So that shut down. And that was one of the first productions to say, not only are we shutting down, but we're not we're not coming back scheduling mishaps and Laurie's going to go here. And so we'll never see that again. We'll never know what that magic might've been. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ensure that I made, uh, made a date with Pammy and I wanted to keep my date uh, with Miss Mangus. Cause uh, that's going to be when we do it and we will do it. It's going to be an extraordinary event for all of us. I think, <laughs> I think that you and I and, and Pammy's uh, mother were the only people who ever called her Pammy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I mean, it's, a, it's the laughter. She was over here one night visiting the pups. You know, she's uh, the patron saint of uh, poopers everywhere. Yes. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, what about an idea? What about Virginia Woolf? And this is a couple of years ago. And this was after a glass of wine or two. And I started listening to her laugh. Tammy's laugh is one of the most infectious things. And I could envision her doing the Martha laugh on stage. <laughs> and, what about Virginia Woolf? I'm like, it's kismet. It's gotta. It's gotta happen. So, out of that conversation here with the visit with the dogs, we put it into the season, and I'll be damned if I was gonna let that go. Oh, I'm so glad too because I, you know that's one of the shows I might not have been able to see, but now, depending on when, you know, we just don't know. As you just said, you're doing things like, well, if not A, then B. If not B, then C. Everybody's sure. planning different contingencies, right. and and as I've been saying to everybody, I, you gotta wonder who's gonna be the first to take the plunge here, and hope that well here let's let me ask you this do you think that the new phoenix because of the configuration because the seats can be reconfigured in in a variety of of ways yeah does that kind of give you an advantage in some ways or because it's a small theater and if you were only at 50 percent capacity that might be a, a do you do you look at that as an advantage or a disadvantage or a little of each a little of each everything is shifted around which is why i wanted to keep the configuration in the center of the stage for whatever we're going to plan to do i think whatever we do first 
is the first line at Normandy that goes in, takes the hit, and clears the way for subsequent performances. So in a, in a sense, that, that might have been the feeling from Rick and Rolando as well. But I was talking to Donna Hoke yesterday, and we had another season planned out. We were going to launch with Suddenly Last Summer for Curtain Up, uh, and then go into Gary Earl Ross's play. He's got a wonderful play about Bram Stoker called Stoker's Guest. So that was the season. Now we're thinking, like Lorraine at the Cav, she had a big musical plan. Right. Now at, at her backup, well, that's not going to really work out. So she's got a one-hand play that's in the back of her head just to be ready to pivot. She also said, I think she can accommodate 57 people at in a configuration at the Cavanoke hmm. that would, but but that also perhaps wouldn't be fiscally viable right. for her to 53 people. So you can do it, but you know you're, you are guaranteed to lose money if you do it. But to be honest, I mean, it would work different for me. I'm coded for 122. And if I'm told I have to reduce to 50%, you know, that's a 60 plus. And I'll tell you, honestly, there are many, many nights there that I would ring people up and say, hey, we got 62 tonight and be genuinely thrilled. Thrilled, sure. Uh, receive that on a regular basis. So we can do it. But like I say, someone's going to take the hit first. Whatever our first shows are will be the templates, the examples that we set for our brethren community, theater companies, for them to say, ah, this is what to do. Ooh, this is what not to do. Exactly. So we're, we're ready to pivot, but we know it's going to be trial and error. And I keep thinking also, I'm so proud of our governor for being giving us a great deal of clarity for what we can do and can't do. But even he doesn't know, all right, we're going to open up August 19th. Clean your seats. Da, 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 da. We're all waiting for the master list. Please tell me what I have to do, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it to, to jump back into the game here, too. So it's a waiting game, but I'm, I'm waiting. We're all waiting. We're all waiting for, for guidance to be told what we have to do in order to do the thing that we love the most. Of course, and nobody wants to be the first to screw up, you know, to say, well, you know, the new Phoenix uh, opened up, but because they're, the audience is close, it's like, it's like Roadless Travel. Yep. The, the audience is right there on top. At the Cavanoke, at least the audience can be 20 feet away, right. at least. And But at the new Phoenix and Roadless Travel and the Irish, th these little theaters, the, your, your cast is right there. And if the cast isn't in, in masks, well, now what does that mean? And if they're, only, if they're less than six feet away now, what does that mean? And, and somebody's got to come up with these answers, and nobody was... One thing leads to another. <laughs> it is right now. It didn't occur to me. Common sense, I thought I had it nailed, but I, I guess I don't. I was thinking on stage, if, even if your actors are closer than six feet, I forgot that they have to wear masks. So you can't do... You can do Kafka, you can do Orwell, you, maybe you can do Godot, but where people... Where it doesn't end with a big sloppy kiss. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to work. So, and I was reminded, by, I think, by Lorraine Monday ago at a Zoom meeting for Tab, saying, "Well, also, it goes the same consideration goes backstage. Now you're going to have social distancing six foot away from each other oh. in dress rooms. So there's so you think and restrooms. And what about restrooms? And restrooms. And you've been to the Phoenix, the, you know, that bottleneck when you're coming out. Of course. The thing, oh, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me. How do you, we'll eventually learn. But right now, I don't know how to. I, I don't see how we can operate under those. I mean, these are the restrictions today. And as we know, they're different from yesterday and will be different from tomorrow. And, and I think we're all just hoping that at some point we're, we're, we're able to say, okay, all right, now that, that we can do. But yes. certain things like you just said, 
there's no solution to them. Right, right, the, right. The solution is don't open the door. That, that's the solution. That's why Scott may be right. I mean, just writing it out. I was talking to Betsy yesterday and using the equivalent of restaurants saying, okay, we want to open. And the city was sweet in rushing the permits for outdoor dining. But yes. in order to do that, okay, here's now I, we need plexiglass partitions between each. We need that, 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 that. Uh, that was when it first opened. Now, even mm -hmm. today, you don't really need that. So for a small restaurant that seats maybe 40 to invest three, four, five thousand dollars in plexiglass that right now, weeks later, is no longer needed. I just put out four thousand bucks that I didn't have. Well, put it in your basement for the next pandemic. So maybe you don't want to rush okay, buy this, buy this, get this done, da, 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 until we're told exactly here's the final punch list and do it. So maybe we got another quote. I mean, uh Dame Judy Dench was quoted a couple of days ago saying, I don't think theater is going to return in my lifetime. Oh my lord. Yeah. Oh oh that's frightening. It's, it's smart people saying, okay, what do we do? And mostly it's these conversations, but most of it is still wrapped in the unknown. And here's another question. When will the audiences feel comfortable coming back? My favorite restaurant in Hamburg, I've been getting takeout because, but the other day they decided to open and they decided to stop doing takeout. And I thought, they said, why don't you come in and sit at the bar? I, I, always, I always go sit at the bar and, and order my meal there. You know what? I don't feel comfortable yet. I just, and I'm wondering when our audience is going to feel comfortable as well. And we can't answer that for them, and it, it will be. It's not, I mean, the greater thing is uh, filling arenas. I mean, it all, it's a mindset, too. We got some political stuff going on that people do not mind rubbing shoulders and <coughs> coughing literally inches away from someone. But like, yeah. but there are smart people saying, well, now wait, I don't want to rush out. And I, I will go to support people I know, restaurants I know, and eventually theaters I know. I want to make sure that I'm doing things legally, properly and and with safety as well but then there's the bottom the bottom line if we don't know what what it is yet how can we ask our guests to come into our theaters to share that experience when there is a bunch of unknown so we want to get there but we can't race it we can't put anybody at risk uh just for the sake of our art so we have to wait and you know what Chekhov at the beginning of the seagull they've got all those wonderful lines new forms of theater are needed. We need new forms of theater. That's like the first page on, mm -hmm. on the seagull. And out of this pandemic will come some of those changes, not all of them. And some people have tried already. Oh, and I, I know what I was gonna say about Zooming. The second that you transfer a, a live experience, an intimate sitting next to someone in the theater, until you can get that on Zoom, it's not theater, it's at best, a video performance, a television performance, but it's not theater. No. It's not why we chose to do what we're doing. So eventually it we will land in something. Remember many decades ago, Laurence Olivier, his holographic image was in the musical Time, uh, I think in London, and that or Elvis going on, or mm -hmm. Whitney going on tour yes, as a yes. holographic. It may be something like that, but we don't know yet. So it's I'm trying to view it as an exciting time where where new forms of theater will come out of this, but they're not out yet. And and I, I say to everybody, uh, thank God I'm not in your position of, of tr having to make decisions because it, it's one thing to have to make, come up with a creative idea. I was talking to David Bondro from the Lancaster Opera House. He's got an idea of something to happen. Good for him. But for, for people in, in these positions who are, who are in the decision makers, Holy cow, I mean, there are just so many variables and so many question marks. Sure. I don't envy you. Is there anything that you can announce that you are going to try to continue 
uh, new Phoenix programming in any way, or is it still just a big waiting game? I think it's still a waiting game. I mean, like I said, we had a season announced that we're planning to do. Part of it includes, obviously, Virginia Woolf. We, I must put some belief in the fact that by the time we get to May of next year, oh. anything in place will have been put in place. We know what to do to to go back into a theater, close the doors, dim the lights, timpani please, and we are back into some form of theater that that we recognize, not Zoomed, but an intimate experience with an audience that's comfortable and leaning in for what we're doing on that stage. So I know that, you know, should we get it, should we get to May of next year, we know that's on the calendar. There's a great play that I uh, calendar that Mike Dobin is directing for us in January called Foxcatcher. And it's as striking and brilliant as his work last year at Subversive when he put on Mercury Fur. Yes. Which I just, I, it still goes around in my head. It was such a, like a new form of theater. I thought I was experiencing something fresh and new. It was the well-made play, but the way that it was presented, the text was grand. So he suggested this play for the Phoenix, and I jumped on it to get the same team, to get to get Mike in, to get Rick in, to get Shelby Converse in, who's doing, uh, we'll be doing the choreography and stuff. So I'm, I'm all goes well. I mean, we're, we're caught up on, on uh, rights for that. So that's supposed to open up in, in January. And I'd certainly love to see that, but we are at the mercy. Our art is at the mercy of someone telling us your art can go up now right. or no, we're ready yet for you. And we'll know when we know. So there's no definitive answer until we get definitive answers from higher powers of what we can or cannot do at the Phoenix Theater. And I think a lot of people are just waiting for that inoculation that says, okay, you can't catch it now. Uh, and maybe we'll have that by January. Maybe we'll have it by, you know, December. They're fast-tracking it, trying to... But will it be effective? Yeah. Someone asked me this morning in the phone call, well, maybe they'll have it, uh, someone who works a great deal out of the Phoenix, giving classes. He said to me, well, uh, are you ready? Well, I'm ready when they tell me what, what we got to do. And he said, well, maybe we'll have the... Uh, the vaccine. The vaccine. We'll have the vaccine. He said, maybe by uh, September 1st. And I nodded, uh, because we know it's not going to happen by then. We want it <laughs> yesterday. We want safety. Will that guarantee everyone's safety? So we don't know. So take a breath. I'm trying to enjoy puppies, enjoy Sunday dinners that Mark creates for us all. Uh, be grateful. I can leave you. I'm going to go out to Home Depot, get on my mask and buy more mulch and get back out to, to the garden and be grateful that I can garden. Be grateful. I just... Are you the one who's maintaining all those beautiful flowers and everything in front of the new Phoenix? Oh, yeah, yeah. All those gardens. Are you doing it? Yeah, yeah, but it's not a lot of, you know, it's cement, and I've got, I've got... But you've got some boxes, and you've I got some... a shitload of boxes and planters. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's all me. That's, and, you know, a lot of gurney seed early on and stirred up and mixed, and now sculptures. And we've got the little library out there now, too, that we're filling with other things that uh, neighbors can potentially use other than the great donations of books. So we're trying to look out for, uh, uh, for people in the park still after 25 years of, 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 of trying to do that. We're still doing that. Yeah. Well, Richard, I've kept you much longer than I expected to. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Anything anything else you'd like to say uh, about the new Phoenix or just, no, you know? No, I'm, I'm grateful for a chance to talk to someone smart who's someone empathetic and, uh, uh, and passionate about, uh, you know, about theater, but about your life, too. Well, we couldn't find anybody like that today, but uh, I'm, I'm the fill-in for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
we rally around you, man, because for decades, decades, I hope you don't sure. mind my saying that, uh, you've been you've been the guy. You've been, it's so easy to be tainted into blah, blah, blah. This conversation was great for me. Just getting a chance to see your smiling face. I'm looking forward to the next time I see the, what's, what's for dinner at the Lambert Moretti's house. <laughs> I'll reference you on Sunday. Okay, bye-bye now. Thank you, Peter, bye. Thank you. Richard Lambert, old friend Richard Lambert, what a talented guy over there at the new Phoenix on the Park. Now, before we go any further, it's time for another mystery guest. Someone who has sent us a message from the bunker. And I certainly hope it's not as creepy as the last episode. So, I received a message from Mr. Palmisano asking me to talk about something crazy that I've seen people do during quarantine. But, you know, who hasn't seen something crazy, right? So, certainly I could speak about the people ignoring health regulations by not wearing masks or what have you, but I think the craziest and most fascinating thing that I've witnessed is the assortment of activity being shared through videos and lengthy social media posts or even podcasts from creative people that no longer have their usual outlet. I have been treated to concerts and paintings and monologues and lip syncing and words of wisdom and even a fair amount of simply yelling into whatever void is nearest. The entertainer's need for an audience is a fragile thing, and it's been a spectacle to watch the delicate weavings of artistic people try to ravel themselves into something new just to stay fulfilled. I'm glad I haven't personally fallen victim to it. Anyway, Peter, be sure to post a link to my personal website for the latest and my YouTube channel with the new cooking videos, and uh, check out Facebook where I've posted progress on my newfound hobby for woodworking. Oh, oh, and... um. Stay tuned for a brand new stage play after I finish these logos and illustrations I've been working on. Bye! <laughs> Another mystery voice from the bunker. And now, from the Darwin Martin House, actually called the Martin House, if you look it up online, and you should be looking it up online. They've got some great online features. It's Mary Roberts to tell us about what's going on. That I was getting you at a particularly busy time because you were going to be swamped with questions and, and answers and every other thing. And I thought perhaps you were part of phase four. We are part of phase four, but we honestly have been waiting for the guidelines to get to the point where we announce what we're going to do. And I do uh, need to say hello to you from my friend, David Lundy. Oh, okay. Who you may remember as a, as a docent there. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. I told him I was meeting with you. He had very nice things to say, and he asked me to say hello to you from, from him. So. Uh, well. Tell him I said hello back. I miss seeing him. I really he's do. a he's a great guy. I enjoy talking to him. He's a very interesting guy. I find him really interesting. Well, well, Mary, part of the reason why we wanted to talk to you today is basically we're trying to find out what all of the various cultural institutions and how they're dealing with the well, with the quarantine and with the COVID and all of that stuff. And as you said, you haven't opened yet, but how have things been going? How have you been uh, handling day-to-day -day operations there at the at the Martin House. At the Martin House, our mission, our primary dictate of our mission is to preserve and sustain this world-class architecture. Yes. 
So we are still doing that. Essential maintenance of our historic structures continues even while the buildings are in what I would call unoccupied mode. We are still maintaining the site. That's our primary mission. We're doing it in a slightly different way because of being vacant and because of staff layoffs. But we're maintaining our restored landscape, the plants in our conservatory. Whatever we need to do, we're doing. So on a bright note, even though the site is closed, hundreds and thousands of spring and now summer blooms are appearing for the first time in our rehabilitated landscape. Mostly we have been spending a lot of time in the recent months planning for reopening, what yes. that constitutes, how we'll do it. So day-to-day um, -day operations continue in a scaled-back manner, obviously. With the buildings closed, and I assume, I assume that the major, the five buildings, the main buildings are closed to the public. Yes. Uh, you haven't had people going through, but they no. do require, yes. if not constant maintenance, then certainly a watchful eye. Routine maintenance. Most people don't realize that they hear the Martin House and they think of a single building, but in essence, we have three historic residences on the estate and three, yes. what I would call support buildings, a conservatory, a pergola, and a carriage house. The carriage house hosts a lot of the mechanicals. It's also our museum store. And we also have non-historic structures to include our administrative offices in a, in a remodeled home alongside the Martin House. We also have our Great Batch Pavilion Visitor Center. And then we have a non-right design, but a historic carriage house adjacent to the Barton House that houses a small grab-and-go cafe. So all those buildings have been basically put into shutdown mode for the last, you know, we, we closed to the public. Our last day of operations was March 13th, and we began basically putting the buildings into an unoccupied mode to save money. But now we're trying to uh, start the process to restore them. We've had to do a lot of maintenance. I mean, you have to do maintenance anyway. We do daily walkthroughs just for security to make sure nothing is leaking, nothing is damaged, nothing has gotten in, all those sorts of things. But we're very, very serious about our maintenance protocols as a National Historic Landmark. It is it is the top dictate of our mission to preserve those buildings. I, I would imagine so, because they are such... I'll tell you this also, that was when my daughter got engaged, which was 14 years ago, so it was long before, no, I'm, oh, it was 16 years ago, long before all the restoration was finished, she brought her fiancé to Buffalo, oh. and he was from the South, and the first place we went was to the Martin House, and it was not, it wasn't even completely, the pergola wasn't finished. Yeah. I, I have been there, the pergola was just an idea at that point, point. Yeah. and uh, I've been here there since then, the, the, the Great Batch Pavilion wasn't there at the time. But one of the first places we went was for the Martin House. So with all of the, well, you had uh, most of the staff obviously had to had to have been furloughed or laid off from the time you closed. But who has been working full time besides various maintenance people and so on? Well, at the onset of the pandemic, sixty percent of our employees were laid off. Oh. That was four full-time, 15 part-time, most of them in customer-facing positions. Mm -hmm. So 60% of the employees were laid off and about 30% were working dramatically reduced hours. So a full-time person, most of them went down to two days a week, one or two days a week. We started to participate, applied to, and joined the New York State Shared Work Programs to assist those who were on reduced hours. And then our reduced staffing has necessitated what I would call realigned duties. Yes. Um, those who are still working are doing a great job getting done what needs to be accomplished. And we all have different jobs. Some of us have taken cuts in pay. We've learned how to work remotely very efficiently. We've learned when we absolutely need to be on site. And um, so right now there are five full-time people working. Myself, our marketing person is still full-time. 
We have two maintenance staff members and um, they've been doing things that we normally hired outside companies to do. And our curator is full-time too in terms of our collection. So we've got some part-time people, our development person, almost full-time, but still part-time. Retail is part-time, our programs, our education person, our one admin is part-time. So everybody has a little bit of, you know, it's hard, you can't cross all these jobs. The bookkeeper can't do what the education person did. So everybody is we're working a reduced schedule for the most part until we get back to the point where we can um, sustain it. I mean, the reality for us is that our revenue for the year will probably, if we're lucky, only take in half of our annual revenue our projected budgeted revenue. So we've had to make dramatic cuts, sure. dramatic curtailing of expenditures, trying to figure out you know, how we can do more with less. I'm sure that that's true of, of many people, but you have a unique situation in that you mentioned the, the grounds, the, the gardens and so on. You have all of these buildings. It's, I know I spoke to the gentleman from uh, the, the BPO and you know they have they have mm -hmm. client hands and they have one other building and I spoke to the science museum and so on. Well, you have all of these different buildings and the grounds that have to be maintained. So I was going to ask you if, if your property and your situation poses any distinct problems because of the fact that you have multiple buildings and and multiple areas to be maintained. Well, Peter, you know, in the nonprofit world, we don't have problems. <laughs> um, all, all challenges are looked at as opportunities. So our challenges this year are learning for the first full year how to maintain a very extensive landscape. Nearly 10,000 things were planted on our site as part of the rehabilitation of the landscape, which we basically completed last July. So this is the first full year of growth. Was that your phase five of the... No. Phase five, the numbers refer to building okay. phases, landscape came after phase five. Okay. The landscape this year, you know, they have a saying in horticulture that when you plant a new landscape, the first year it sleeps, the second year it creeps, and the third year it leaps. <laughs> so last year it was creeping, or it was sleeping. This year it's creeping, and we're just beginning to get a sense of it. I mean, the delphiniums are three foot high. We had these beautiful peonies, but with nearly 10,000 species of plants flowering bulbs, shrubs, trees. Oh. We're learning what it means to have a full-blown landscape. We had already hired last year in the fall an external um, landscape company to help us with maintenance, somebody who's very qualified in historic species and you know, not just somebody that knows how to plant geraniums at the edge of a parking lot. This yeah. is a very extensive landscape and it's a significant investment. So our facilities manager has been taking on managing the outside firm that has been doing the majority of the landscape. And at the Martin House, people don't know this, but we have nearly 400 truly active volunteers. Most people think of our volunteers or most people who interface with them like our mutual friend David, yes. think of them as our tour guides, our docents and our chaperones. But we also have had a very active landscape committee that comes on site one or two days a week and deadheads and trims and you know cuts back the pergola or the wisteria that grows like a weed. Wow. So it's been an interesting year because we have not re-engaged with the volunteers to any significant degree yet. We're getting ready to do that now and have our landscape volunteers back because it takes a village to run this place, to be honest I, with you. I believe it. I was going to ask about the volunteers and if they had come back on board yet or if you had a plan for when they were coming back on board. I didn't realize, frankly, because as you said, like the docents, I didn't realize that you had so many other volunteers in so many other capacities on the property. We do. Our volunteers are really wonderful, and they're the backbone of what we've done, and they've been at the center of what we've done since the beginning. 
you know, there's a number of people on our staff, myself included, who started out as Martin House volunteers. My husband and I signed up to be tour guides over 20 years ago, and then, you know, things evolve. But our volunteers not only conduct and offer our tours, our tour program, and last year we hosted over 40,000 visitors or customers, most of them through public tours, but also through education programs and the like. So our volunteers assist with education programs. They work alongside paid staff and guest services and retail. They help us with the landscape. We even have a committee of volunteers that work alongside our staff. They're called the Interior Beautification Committee, and they help maintain the historic components of the buildings. Wow. You know, we don't ask them to cut the lawn or do anything like that, but um, there are certain things that take a little bit of extra loving care and if that's the need, the volunteers are really there to help us. And do they also have to be educated in a certain way to maintain things yes. in conjunction and with yeah. coordination with the way yep. the Frank Lloyd Wright would be designated? I don't know so much. Well, yes, everyone is trained. So volunteers who offer tours, we call them docents, go through a very formal training with practice sessions, on-site sessions, and they have to be recertified periodically and of have course, continuing yeah. education. People that work in the landscape work under guidance. We don't just say, go out there and do what you want. We have a set program that activities that need to happen on a monthly basis that are then specific to whatever the week's chores are. People that work with the housekeeping staff and the interior beautification, they have very specific rules about what is touched, what is not touched, how you touch them, mm. what you clean them with. Wow. Our maintenance is one of the things that we're most fastidious about because we really, people think of it as a house, but what we really are is a museum with extensive collections. You know, Wright designed nearly 75 pieces of original furniture for the house, the main house that is. We have about 55 of them and then some other replica pieces for items that were missing. And we treat them like museum objects. And in any other built, you know, they might be items in a formal museum, but we have them on display in the house where they belong. Yes. So in the pandemic, it's great because we've always been a no-touch site. You know, we don't have to worry <laughs> about that. We don't have any... I mean, we will have lots of signs, but we... we the bright side of... The bright, the bright side, side is we were already a no-touch site even before the pandemic. I, I was going to ask if you, if you um, if there are any positives of how you fare in the pandemic compared to others. And I guess that's one of the positives is that you haven't had to worry about people touching things that they shouldn't touch. Yeah. And, and, and as you said, you have a tremendous staff of volunteers. We have a tremendous board. We have a tremendous staff and we have tremendous volunteers. It's really a tripart community of people that help this place. When we talk about what do we have that gives us a slight advantage at this point in time, I would say that we've always been guided tours for the most part, and they've always been small group tours. And we've always had predetermined routes and the like. So we're ready to reopen. We've got some questions about some of the guidelines that were issued a few days ago. And that's holding back our announcements because we're trying to figure out if we need to pivot on how we book and arrange tours. But, um, you know, for us, what we're doing is reducing our capacity and we're having distancing markers in historic buildings for people as they walk through them. Mm -hmm. We're adjusting tour routes. We're making sure that people are outdoors as much as possible, that there is fresh airflow. You know, we've got all the sanitation things that you can imagine and more, certifications and the like, contact tracing. But for us, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, I think, a very smooth reopening. The problem is it's a much reduced capacity. So where yes. does it make sense financially? We think staying dark any longer is not in our best interest. We may lose money to reopen before the numbers start to pick up, but 
even being closed, we've learned a lot from that. You know, we've got some advantages. One of the things that we've come out of this much stronger in is our digital communications. We've really yes. transitioned. Um, we use a lot of traditional, but many new and revised strategies for social media, digital communications. These, as everyone knows, are even more important as a lifeline right now in current times to our supporters, to our volunteers, all of our constituents. So one of the things that we love that we've been doing is with partners in the local cultural community and in a separate program with the National Frank Lloyd Wright Sites, we've been creating and sharing tons of digital content. Um, we're providing our own educational programs online for parents via our website. But things like our virtual right visits have really taken off and we've been enhancing what we do digitally. We've also transitioned to a much stronger online retail platform while we've been closed. We've you know, been able to do that, which has given us some greater opportunities there. And it's funny, even while we're closed, we are getting some really good earned media. Things locally, the Buffalo News did a wonderful piece in their Sunday magazine a few months back on our restored landscape. But even the Washington Post, um, the architectural critic for the Post, authored a major piece on the Martin House, which appeared recently. Really? And it was an enormous front page article with a two page interior spread on the um, the centerfold with enormous photos and it re was reprinted in major Canadian papers. But to get a Washington Post profile by the architecture critic, wow. we couldn't be happier with that. You know, it's not all rosy. What we're concerned about now, the daily problems is, you know, what's the uncertainty regarding tourism? But that is, like I said, it's not necessarily a challenge. I'm gonna call it an opportunity because even though traditionally our visitation was largely outside Western New York, 75% of our visitors came from outside Western New York, including about a 17% international component, largely Canadian. We're not gonna get any Canadian tourists this year. We're right. gonna get very few out of area tourists. Right. So we've pivoted and we're looking at our local community. We think that that's a much stronger target and people that are in drive distance. We've always drawn heavily from other parts of the state, from Pennsylvania, Ohio. Those are the people that, are, as, as people are really hesitant to travel far, this is the summer to take a vacation, either in your own city or in your own neighborhood, basically, for the people that want to do it in drive time. So I see that. Yes, that's a that's a very, very good way to, to look at it, because I'll be honest with you, I, I had never visited before 16 years ago when my daughter brought her fiance up. I had never visited and I've been there twice more since then. I've seen the pergola and the Great Batch Pavilion and so on, but people locally who don't visit their local treasures of which this is certainly one of them. Yeah, people don't realize as much. I mean, people think about the Martin House as, a, as architecture. And if you don't know or care much about architecture, you might not care about the Martin House, but what people don't know or what, what I think is a message that needs to be disseminated more widely is Buffalo really is at a tipping point as a destination market for arts and architecture. And I see that because I'm basically in the tourism industry. I serve on the board and chair visit Buffalo Niagara, our destination marketing agency in the community. So the Martin House is sort of, is widely viewed as the centerpiece of architectural tourism. It's a symbol of what our city's doing in terms of some aspects of its renaissance. And I think that beyond preservation of a national historic landmark, the Martin House really shows how investments in historic preservation projects create significant economic impact. People don't realize it, but we spin off in excess of $15 million a year of annual economic impact into this community because people come here, they stay here, they use our hotels, they 
visit the restaurants, they go to other local attractions while they're here. But by and large, we're probably the only local destination that draws so much out of area visitation. And it's really about economic, as, economic impact as much as it's about preservation. So for people like you and others that have heard about the Martin House for so long, what I would say is this is the year. Mm -hmm. I would invite you to see it. You have to experience it to believe it. It's not just a single house. It's a collection of buildings. It's an estate that has extensive furnishings, art glass, beautiful landscape. It is one of those things that by and large, the uniform response from people that didn't really know about it too much before they came is, I had no idea. Yes. People come, they visit, and they walk away and say, this is just amazing. Yes. It's yes. just amazing. You have to see it to believe it. So we're encouraging folks in the community to get their own small group of people. Come with your four, five, six, seven, eight close friends, whatever it is. We're going to keep our tour groups under 10. But think about who you could bring as a group and be safe in your own backyard and visit something that you've heard about for so long and that maybe you haven't been back to in a while. It's time to do it this year. Do you plan to still offer both one hour and two hour tour things? or, or We do. We have a, a range of tours and I, I would normally, well, I mean, I would direct people to our website, but our schedule for reopening isn't up there yet. We will offer self-guided tours. We will offer guided tours with certain restrictions, one hour, two hour landscape tours that focus on the extensive grounds because we know this is a gardening community. I mean, Garden Walk Buffalo is the largest gardening program, outdoor garden uh, festival in the United States. Last year, our first year we participated, we had close to 3,000 people walk the site in two days, Beautiful, which is phenomenal. So this is the year in an outdoor safe setting that you can come see the Martin House. I was going to ask you to do a commercial, but I think you already have. Well, no, but I, that's what I want. But I do want to go back to something. You said that you you were in communication with other right, right properties throughout the country. Had you always done? I've been to my brother lives in Arizona. I've been to Taliesin, and of course, I've been to Gray Cliff and been on the two-hour tour there. Are all of the right properties in communication with each other, or is that also something that has just sprung up recently because of this virus? No, you have. We, we've always been. We have always been in communication with other Wright properties. There's a couple national Frank Lloyd Wright associations, the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, and we're an associated site that works with them in the national properties. I'm also, we're also the Martin House, a member of the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy, and I sit on that board. So nationally, we talk mm. to the other Wright sites all the time. We share ideas, we share programs. We did a Pecha Kucha about uh, three weeks ago on Frank Lloyd Wright's 153rd birthday. Yes. That was nine or 10 different speakers in the Wright world that was viewed across the globe. So we're doing things, the virtual visits, check out our website, check out our YouTube, Facebook channels, our Facebook and YouTube and Instagram channels. All the social media channels have all the virtual right visits that we've done online. And it gives you sort of a sneak peek about what we're doing. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I wasn't even aware. Of course, I wasn't aware. I've lived here my whole life. Well, I wasn't aware that, that you, you already mentioned that you've done much more with the uh, Facebook and those sorts of online things. Is that a result of this quarantine and so on? Or had you always done it, but it's grown more intense? We've always done social media things, but it's grown more intense. It has. The other thing that I don't know if you're going to ask me about it, but I'm going to talk about it, is our public art project. That was my last thing to bring up to you. Go ahead with your questions if you want to go in order. Well, no, 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 that's fine. I was I was just going to get, I didn't want to leave you without talking about the, the Albright Knox public art display. That's And I'm not sure how to pronounce, Kineco, is it? It is, it is. 
June Kaneko. Kaneko, yes. So we're, we're very excited about the public art exhibition in partnership with the Albright Knox. Yes. We have just opened uh, officially last Friday an outdoor, free and open to the public in a safe setting display of 10 pieces of very large ceramic sculptures by a world-renowned ceramicist, Japanese-born, who now lives and works in Nebraska. His name is June Kaneko, J-U-N-K-A-N-E-K-O. Mm -hmm. And we are excited not only to work with one of the most successful and uh, influential public art programs in the country with the Public Art Initiative at the Albright Knox, but also to share the Japanese design aesthetic that is present in these sculptures. You know, most people, uh, many people who know a little bit more about Frank Lloyd Wright know that he was fascinated with Japanese design. And here at the Martin House, um, June Kaneko and Frank Lloyd Wright, they basically speak the same language. You know what? I'm going to just turn off my volume for one minute. Well, while you're doing that, I'll tell you, I did see the Kaneko. I've seen all the pictures in the Buffalo News. They look spectacular. And I did want to ask you what the connection was because why were you chosen to do this? Did you volunteer? I don't mean you personally, but I mean yeah, no. the Martin House. Were you approached by Albright Knox to do this, or was this something you had sure. uh, pursued? The Albright Knox has asked us a couple times in recent years if we would participate in their public art project, and we've had to turn them down a couple times because of the landscape work that was still in process on site. And honestly, I think that that was an opportunity, not a challenge, because the public art project that they proposed to us uh, almost two years ago to feature the work of June Kaneko couldn't be a better installation compared, and there's nothing wrong with any of the other ones, but these massive sculptures, you know, Wright sought to infuse his architecture with some of the similar principles that June Kaneko is best known for. Wright actually traveled to Japan for the first time during the construction of the Martin House. He was already enamored of the Japanese design aesthetic, and they, the two of them, they shared an interest in this. I mean, they actually talk about creative energy in spaces, not solids. You know, there's a Japanese concept known as ma, M-A, and it's the space between two things. And it's what defines and generates how you see the objects. And Wright talked about it. I know this is a little obscure. I'm trying to put artistic words into a, an administrator's voice here. Well, I've read, I have a couple of books myself. I became a big Frank Lloyd Wright fan after I read uh, The Fountainhead many, oh. many, 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 many years ago. And I became a, just a fan of architecture in general. And then I discovered in my 30s and 40s, Buffalo architecture. So I have read about this. I do understand that he has a sort of a the Japanese aesthetic in even the way he designs buildings and the roof lines and the, the ceiling lines and so on, sort of low rather than these just giant cavernous ceilings. Yeah, he's always trying to, right, always tried to infuse his architecture with what he saw in Japanese art and culture, which was basically inner harmony and outward beauty. And these are the same qualities that June Kaneko talks about in his artwork. The pieces that we have on site, there are seven exterior, very large dangos, as Kaneko calls them. It's a Japanese word for dumpling, which sort of refers to the gently rounded shapes. And they're very beautiful, colorful pieces interspersed throughout the landscape, some of them on the historic East Lawn, some of them over to the West on the plaza area by our visitor center. And there are three smaller pieces inside the Great Batch Pavilion Visitor uh, Center. Mm -hmm. And they're just a wonderful adjunct. It makes people think a lot about art, architecture, harmony with nature, 
it's so fun over the last week to see all the families and individuals coming up on site and exploring and seeing these massive sculptures. It has been absolutely fabulous. People are coming from all over the city just to take a look at the artwork in the gardens. And we- Oh, that's wonderful. So it would, part of it was to, to get people to, to just drive by and see and perhaps lure them into the, the, the world of art and then ultimately the world of Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, certainly the goal is to, welcome the community and the timing of this couldn't be better when you think about the fact that people are just now beginning to think about safe ways to come out of their house yes. this is a great way in an outdoor setting that's free and open to the public to have a wonderful experience to see this playful wonderful artwork amidst the beautiful architecture of frank lloyd wright and then hopefully yes people will come back and take a tour they'll shop in our museum store they'll become members you know we do summer camps we do adult lifelong learning programs a lot of these things have been transition to either digital content or delayed right now this year but it's a perfect time if you've ever wanted to see the martin house to come look at it at least from the outside and i'm pretty sure that once people see it they'll say wow i really want to take a tour and see the inside too so am i understanding you that it, was this a happy coincidence that the Kaneko, the japanese art or was it something that you pursued when when albright knox requested it was it was presented to us by Aaron Ott, the curator of public art. He really is the one that has been following Kaneko's work. And one of the pieces that are on display is a ceramic item that the Albright is acquiring for part of their permanent collection. Ah. So this is a collection item for them and it's a way to display other pieces by the same artist. So they presented it to us and we couldn't be happier because of the Japanese. And they, I think they looked at it and said, this makes sense, you know, right in the Japanese design aesthetic. Why not? What better location than here? Plus it's one of the largest exhibitions they've done. It's just you have to see it to believe it, to look around these grounds and to see these massive pieces. People are just walking around with their eyes up, their mouths open, their cameras out, taking pictures, you know. I think there were a lot of photos people saw of Shark Girl with people. There's gonna be a lot of photos of the Kaneko sculptures at the Martin House with people too. I, th I think there's a whole different aesthetic going on there with Shark Girl and- Well, they're both, they're both very playful, let's put it that way. That, that's true, that's true. <laughs> Well, Mary, I did want to ask you one quick question about, I, I think you've already alluded to it, your summer programs, your, uh, your for children, those have been sort of suspended for now, or have they, or have they gone virtual? We are doing summer camps this summer. If you look at our, our website, uh, time is running short, though. If you want to log in and reserve, please do that. I know when this airs, there'll still be a few days that the reservations will be open. And really what it is, is we will be opening very soon. I wish I could tell you a date right now, but by the time this piece airs, it probably will be on our website. Okay, okay. We will reopen to the public in uh, early to mid-July. Okay, that's, that's... I don't know if that helps because this is airing on, what did you say, the 22nd? No, no, this coming Monday, uh, it'll be the 6th. Okay, so what I would say is, by the time this airs, it may be on our website, but we anticipate opening in early to mid-July. The exact date is still to be determined. It's still to be determined. Still some things you have to work out in terms of... Uh... Well, we've gotten the state guidelines and we're trying to interpret one of them in particular, and that's what's holding us back on making a formal announcement. But check out our website. The most current information is always available at martinhouse.org. Well, Mary, I, I thank you very much for spending your time with me. I was going to ask you to explain to us why you think the Martin House is, is such an important, valued asset to the Western New York area, how it's an essential element of life around here. But I think you've already done that. 
if there's anything you'd like to add, please, please do so. The only thing I would add is I'd love to offer an enormous thank you to Western New York for all the support that they've given our project over the years. This has really been a very community focused and outwardly focused project. And I often say to people, it's your Martin House. Come see it. Mm -hmm. So many of you have helped us and supported us over the years, helped us develop the plan, the mission, the vision, and where we are now. It's really based on community input and community support. So thanks to the Western New York community for all they do for Martin House and for all our other cultural institutions. We wouldn't be where we are with if it weren't for the Western New York community. Well, we're trying to get more people involved, trying to get more of the cultural institutions involved. So. I'll send you a link and feel free to share it with anybody you like. And because uh, well, we're good luck with road less traveled. Thank you. It's Thank been you a very challenging much. Challenging year for everybody. I know you've postponed your season till 2021, but you know I like to think that we take the long view in this community. You know, at the Martin House, it's taken us 25 years to get to this point. This is going to be a tough year or two. You know, I heard from someone that it's not a challenge; it's an opportunity. Yes, that's what I heard. All right, I'm going to run. <laughs> Have a good day, Mary. Bye bye. Bye bye now. More great people doing great work in the Buffalo area. Mary Roberts from the Martin House. And now, headed outside the bounds of Buffalo just a little bit to the Lancaster Opera House and their fearless leader, it's Mr. David Bondro. So, how are things going at the Opera House, my friend? Things, things are going as well as they can be with everything that's happened. We were in tech for Nun Sensations, the nuns in Vegas, when the, when the quarantine happened. So we were literally four days from opening, a little under a week. Mm -hmm. That is always so heartbreaking. At least some people got to do the show for, you know, a weekend or a couple of days, but to open uh, and, and then close immediately or to not open at all is just heartbreaking. And there was so much uncertainty. We were, we were having uh, meetings after rehearsals saying, well, if it, gets, if it gets postponed, you know, we don't know how long the, the quarantine would last. Could it be postponed a couple of months? And we were trying to figure out people's schedules. But then pretty quickly, it, it became apparent to me that this was going to last for while yeah well it, it, it we all had the greatest hopes at the beginning and then and then within like a week it seemed like the whole the the, the sky just fell in yeah it was it was a shock um and an, a, an interesting uh situation for the opera house uh we leased the space from the town of lancaster so when the quarantine happened the town went into serious lockdown and i had about three hours to take whatever I needed from the office, and that was it till further notice. And the whole building was shut down. The whole building was shut down. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So then, obviously, the rest of the season, you had what was it, the Music Man? We had Nun Sensations, Blythe Spirit, Stuart Little, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and the Music Man. So five productions were still left. Oh my lord! It uh, it was a process because. We had obviously a number of pre-sold tickets to all these shows. So we, have, we had a ton of patrons that were just left in limbo. And a lot of what I did for the last three months was negotiate with the rights companies to make sure we could actually move them with the pending uh, revival of Music Man on Broadway. We were able to actually, uh, we're actually able to have that production. So now I can actually announce that all five of those shows uh, have been rescheduled for pretty much a year from now, from when this started. So. We're going to reopen in March with Blythe Spirit and basically do the season that we were uh, meant to have this 
this year. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah. That's great. I was going to ask about the about the various negotiations because it seems to me, of course, because of the situation in New York and Broadway, well, all over the world, that probably the rights companies would give you a little bit more leeway than they would normally be willing to do. In certain cases, yes, but in some cases, no. Like, especially with Music Man, because of the potential revival, they, they basically put that on hold until they could clear it, and they eventually did. Yes, they are offering, they're offering some flexibility because as capacity numbers and, and how many performances we will be allowed to have isn't known, they're, they're definitely willing to work with us to make sure that we can have the productions go on as we need to. I see, I see. So because of the fact that they were planning the revival yeah. on Broadway, that that was a particular problem for you. That was a particular you. problem. That, that, put, that put moving it a year from when we were supposed to have it this summer to next summer, they, they had to get it cleared because the revival starring Hugh Jackman was coming. Well, you know, we've sort of jumped ahead to, to one of my last questions, which is what's going on. We'll get back to that. But I want to go back to, I don't even know, David, I, I know that your position there, but I don't know, do you have any other full-time workers that you had to let go or lay off? We did. We did. Um, they're, they're essentially four full-time staff members right now at the Opera House, myself and our tech director, my uh, administrative assistant, and our box office manager. So sadly, I, I did have to furlough two of the positions. Uh, I've recently brought the box office manager back because we're, we now can get back into the office, even though we can't have walk-in traffic at the Opera House yet. Yes. We, are now, we now have access to the office, and our box office manager is... Um, it's interesting because the, the Opera House has had that tradition of, of sometimes being a little old-fashioned. So uh, my box office manager said that he, he felt it was important to have the human contact with all, of our, with all of our patrons who have been sort of left in limbo. So he's, he's made a commitment. He spent the last week in the office creating these massive spreadsheets so that he has every sale, oh. every, every customer's order, their account numbers ready to go. And he's going to call everybody personally going to show order <laughs> to make sure that, you know, to get their tickets exchanged, to give them the options to be satisfied so that we can move forward. Oh, that's that's brilliant and wonderful that he's able to do that. Yeah. And because, as I've told you before, I have a long history with the Opera House. I know it's a tremendous community asset there, and people really feel like it's their place. There's a family feeling about the whole place and, and has been for years. Absolutely. Keep up that individual contact. That's terrific that he's able to do that. You know, a, another question just occurred to me. Because you're part of the the town building there, is that a particular problem? Did you were you later getting in than you would have if you were a freestanding isolated building? Did you have to wait particularly long, or how did that work? Yes, I um, I was not allowed to come and go from the opera house once the initial quarantine happened. I had to be in touch with the town supervisor, and eventually he allowed us back into into the space based on their comfort and and opening up the up the town hall. So I yeah, unfortunately, it was probably a little longer than most, and we didn't have enough time to get a lot of the call forwarding and things set up. So uh, basically, we, we, the only way to reach out to our patrons was through the website with with a big notice saying, "Hang in there." As soon as we get back in, we will we will take care of you. All right. So you couldn't even communicate with them in any way because all of the, all of the information was locked up. Yeah. Whereas other theater managers might have been able to sneak into their building or might have been able to you know open up, run in, and get things. 
you were in a town building that was sealed up tight. Yeah. Well, let's look at the other side of it. Have there been any advantages to the Opera House being part of a larger community government building? The the advantages for us, yes, in that the, the town has been very committed to keeping us informed of the latest regulations and helping out. So we have a lot of shared spaces. So they already have, as they're starting to reopen, they have the hand sanitizer stations at various places, and they're keeping us informed about any measures and how what procedures they're putting in place for for public safety. So I think that they're going to be a great resource so that as we reopen, we'll be able to have uh, have their support. So you'll sort of be working hand in hand with them. But, well, you'll have to. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're, you're sort of in a shared, not sort of, you are in a shared space. Yes. And that's going to be something that's, that will be an advantage to you in the future. Now, all of these shows, let, going back to that now, all of these shows that you are now shifting one full year ahead. Mm-hmm. It's almost like literally taking a, a pause and saying, okay, the past 12 months didn't happen. We're going to move everything, not even attempting, or are you attempting? I know you, you had summer programs. I know that you, those obviously must be canceled. Yeah, it was, it was very sad to, that we had to, we had to put, we, we, we have very popular summer theater camps yes, uh, yes. that we run at the Opera House. We had to pause those, and, and, and we just recently sent all of the tuition uh, refunds back because, we, we, I mean, we did get questions, you know, are you going to do the virtual thing and do all this? And I, I just, I made, the, I made the decision that the experience was being in the opera house and, and doing live theater in that space for those kids, and, and I just didn't feel, I, I didn't feel it would be the same thing to, uh, to try to do it virtually. So we're, we're going to put that on a pause, too, for next week. You're absolutely right. It's just not the same. No, it's not the same. I talked to certain instructors that were trying to, to teach dance classes earlier in this, you know, to try to keep dance studios open virtually. And they were saying it was so hard because the kids couldn't dance together. You couldn't sync the music up. And certain kids were doing it in their bedroom and they were sitting on their bed. Like, it's just <laughs> the same experience. I think, you know, I mean, that's part of the problem with all of this home stuff. So many people are going to be without decent Wi-Fi or 4G or whatever to make this kind of communication possible. And even even if you could do something that is virtual, it ends up being stiff and, and stuttery and, and every other thing. So, so anyway, so you're, you've had to cancel the, the summer camp thing. Yeah. Did, did you have any other revenue st- streams? I know a long time ago, uh, you used to bring in a lot of concerts, a lot of one-night things. Did you have a lot of those things scheduled, or do, don't you do them very often? Uh, we we had we had a couple of uh, we had a couple of concerts um, also scheduled. Those have not been rescheduled uh, because with the with the potential capacity restrictions, a one-night event. Uh, will be the hardest and most risky thing for me to to continue with. So those those will be the one night events will be um, on hold uh, until further until until we can figure out how to get most people in safely. Because it, it's, it's it's been fascinating to talk to uh, a bunch of different directors from around town and ar- across the country 
saying, you know, people don't realize it's it's not just sitting in the theater, but it's the lobby and restrooms and the box office and then protecting the artists. You, you've been in the dressing room in the opera house. It's not a big space. <laughs> that, that's true. Trying to keep actors safe is going to be a challenge, too. So ultimately, I, I made the decision that it's it's best right now not to try to open open too soon under these uh, under these circumstances and hold off long enough so that we can do it safely. Well, David, that brings up another question. If, let's say next March, when you do sort of uh, start again, mm -hmm. right from basically where you left off, what if there are still restrictions in terms of house capacity and so on? Now, that, there's an advantage the Opera House has is you have a lot of seats, you have a lot of balcony, you could spread way out. Yeah. Is that, have you thought about that as a particular advantage or have you thought about contingencies for spreading people out? Maybe maybe even running more shows, but for smaller groups? All, all of a sudden, one of, uh, one of what I thought were aesthetic disadvantages of the Opera House has become one of the best advantages in that the main floor doesn't have permanent seating. Yes. So one of the, one of the experiments that I have been doing now that I can get back into the theater is trying out different com different layouts configurations sure yes different configurations of seating and at one point i thought of even so that it didn't feel so perhaps isolating to maybe have little tables so that the, the main floor would almost feel like a little like a like a cabaret seating area where where potentially customers could could purchase a table and, and a couple of seats around it that was socially distanced from other seats so yes i've, I've thought of a bunch of different things and and basically, the, the best thing to do right now is to just have a bunch of different plans in place so that as the information comes out, we'll be able to adapt. Because it's changing by the minute. and Absolutely. And hopefully around here, it stays a, a little bit more open because as you, you, I'm sure you've been following the rest of the country. Is, are you kind of a one-man decision-making operation right now? Is there is there somebody else there that you work with or that you, you know, bound, aside from other theaters and other, other people, I'm sure you've spoken, sure. you could speak to people around the world right now who are in similar situations. My box office manager, Johnny Landis, and I are, we're talking the most, and, and I still I still do reach out to to Fran, my, my administrative assistant, and I, I've talked to Kirkland a little bit, our tech director, so I do, I do bounce things off of people but uh, you know especially if i furloughed somebody i don't want to take advantage of that situation but yeah it's it's been it's been tough what about a board of uh, i know you have a board of directors our board still meets yes and they're they 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 have been incredibly supportive we put together i, I call it the the choose your own adventure we, <laughs> we have various we have budget a budget b budget c <laughs> so they very helpful in making sure that the that the opera house can stay financially stable until we're ready to reopen and they've been very supportive as well. yeah i'm sure that there's a lot of if this then this yes but if this then this but <laughs> all the yeah. the possible eventualities that could happen yeah. and all the various contingencies and i agree with you that because you can set the audience back 20 feet and it still doesn't seem like you're right. in another country you're you're still you know, pretty close to the audience. So you, you have a lot of different options there that that others might not have who have se seats that are fairly right. stationary. The, the big question I've gotten a lot is, well, if you're not planning to reopen till March, what are you what what are you going to do until then mm -hmm. to, to sort of keep the creative 
the creative juice is flowing. We're, we've come up with a new concept, and it's, uh, I can, I can s- sort of officially announce it now. It's going to be called the LOH Radio Hour. <laughs> As part of the last uh, three months of, of quarantine, I've listened to so many of those wonderful old um, Orson Welles and, and, the, yes. and all the different radio theater that was done in the 30s and then 40s. The Lone um, Ranger, The Shadow, yes. the, the CBS Mystery Theater, yes. And it, I got inspired to do that because we, we just, this, the last show we did at Christmas time was a radio, a radio play presentation of a Miracle on 34th Street. Yes. So I thought, well, this, this, could, be, this could be a way to, to stay connected with our audience. So we've, we've now been working, we've got about four different scripts ready to go with all original material. And then hopefully I'll be able to bring back some artists. I can, uh, we can bring back some people on payroll. We're going to re-engage Fran to be our music director. So we're going to bring, bring people back to the, back to the, the theater in a safe way and record these podcasts. We're going to release them in a couple of different ways. You'll be able to, you'll be able to get them on the computer, but of course, a significant portion of the Opera House audience, especially, may not be uh, computer savvy. So we're now negotiating with some local radio stations to actually broadcast them as well. Oh, that would be very exciting. Yeah. And the cool part is we will, we plan to produce the first few, uh, you know, in a very safe way, even if we're getting one, in, one artist in at a time in the studio and doing that. But hopefully, my idea with it is we can use that programming as a way to transition back into the live theater, meaning we may eventually be able to have a live studio audience at the opera house with the microphones placed across the stage, keeping all of the actors socially distanced and record uh, some of these presentations with the, with the, with the audience. And that way we could test out all the new safety pr- uh, protocol and uh, get us back in business. I think th- I think that's a wonderful idea. I think that's a brilliant idea. Where are you getting? You said that you have original scripts. Yes, um, I I actually I to start I dug out a couple of shows that I wrote back in college with a friend of mine in New York City. Okay, Johnny Landis, our box office manager, and his writing partner Jay Wolin. They've already written a couple of original shows for us in the past, so they have some new material they want to test out. So we're 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 ready to go. So would you record them sort of as a Zoom thing, although you wouldn't use the video, but you'd record the audio so that everybody was there? Or would you put people, well, you probably don't even, haven't decided yet. Would they all be in the same room? I haven't fully decided. I think we, I, I don't think we, I don't know if we're going to use Zoom. I think, I think the idea is to try to set up a recording studio and really focus on the, on the audio of it. Yes. So using using top sound equipment, Johnny and Jay are going to take all some of them. Some of the material we wrote are musicals, so they're going to orchestrate them and make finale, uh, put it into finale and make beautiful soundtracks to go with it. And then uh, Fran will coordinate all that with all the singers. So it's it's going to be pretty ambitious. I'm excited. Well, that's very cool. I think that's very cool. Yeah. And it of of course like like this podcast, it'll be free. I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, over the over the airwaves or over the computer waves, as your audience is not alone in in many of them being less computer savvy than you would like, or certainly some people have not even heard of podcasts. So you're going to have to find other ways to reach out to them. But I think that's a very cool idea. Yeah. And you and you took away my last question, which was, well, what else have you got going on? And that's that's what you've got going on. It's very very cool. Yeah, it's been awesome to explore that style of theater and 
in in a weird way for me creatively it's it's all it's all coming together because uh, I right before this pandemic broke out I was uh, I was in Berlin seeing a bunch of theater there and obviously paying homage to Brecht and and <laughs> and he basically you know he said you know don't try to compete with film theater is different uh, it can be artificial and and let people's imaginations fill in the blanks and get into their minds and so we thought well okay if we can't actually get into the theater right now we're going to focus on on the word and the sound and get into people's imaginations and then lure them right back into the opera house when it's safe. And that's what it was. That's what it was billed as theater of the mind. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to show my age now, but I, I mean, I was not around when they were in the, during the heyday of radio theater, but I remember as a kid late at night, there were some stations in Buffalo that would broadcast some of the old CBS mystery hour or the Lone Ranger or the show. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> and I remember that. And, and it was because you'd sit there in the dark listening to the radio and using your imagination. And, of course, you have to have a good Foley, a good sound effects guy and all that kind of stuff. Because that really, as you just said, the sound quality, all of that adds to the experience. And I'm looking forward to hearing your first one and, and uh, to seeing how it goes for you. I, I think it's... And the idea that you can transition that into maybe ha having a small audience and doing it radio theater as a live radio play. So I think that's very exciting. Good for you. Well, I think we've covered everything I needed to cover. Any final words of uh, encouragement or hope you want to give out? I'm glad to see that you guys. Yeah, uh, all I can say is that this, this pandemic was a big shock. And my heart goes out to all of my fellow artists that just saw their work just disappear right now there's hope we will overcome this we will adapt and the opera house will be there for the artists for our audience for our community and uh, we will overcome this david thank you very much for joining me on off-road i appreciate it and best of luck to you nice talking to you no no i said no 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 don't don't you make me come over there. You know I'll come over there if I... Oh, never mind. When? When will it all end? And uh, you and I both know that could be applied to many different issues right about now. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. And I hope you will actually go out and help these people out and, and support all of these cultural institutions that are doing amazing work in the Buffalo and Western New York area. I know I will as soon as, soon as things lighten up a little bit. Because don't you think the idea of a staycation where you see all of the things in Western New York, all of the things in the Buffalo area that you've been meaning to go out and see, that's the way to spend your summer vacation, if you have one. And you can trust that it's going to be safe. Because I know how hard these people are working to reopen and make everything safe again for their friends and neighbors in our area. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with more interviews, more fascinating people from the Buffalo and Western New York cultural scene and theatrical scene. So I hope you will listen in then. And if you are of a mind to want to perhaps contribute to the podcast... You can always send me a message from the bunker. And did you recognize this week's mystery guest? 
my dear friend Jake Alborella, everybody's favorite guy. And listen, if you're of a mind to contribute to the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you have to say from your bunker. So send me a message. Just record it on your phone. Nothing fancy. Just a very simple message. And then email it to me at rltpoffroad at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. In the meantime, this is Pete Palmisano saying so long for RLTP's Off-Road. Off-Road.